if we don't ask these questions for ourselves and we don't think about them and we don't look at them from different angles until we feel like we've landed at what's right for us, we're living someone else's life or story. As a young mother, I experienced a paradigm shift that transformed how I saw education and ultimately the world around me. I started this podcast, The Luminous Mind, to connect with and learn from people who are disrupting the status quo in how they learn, educate, and live in the world around them. Prepare for a paradigm shift. Light a candle, light your world. Benjamin Franklin said, instead of cursing the darkness, light a candle. You're listening to The Luminous Mind with your host, Rebecca Bowman. Today's fire starter is Eric Zimmer. A behavior coach, podcast host, and author, Eric Zimmer is endlessly inspired by the quest for a greater understanding of how our mind works and how to intentionally create the lives we want to live. At age 24, Eric was homeless, addicted to heroin, and facing a long jail sentence. In the years since, he has found a way to recover from addiction and build a life worth living for himself. Eric works as a behavior coach and has done so for the past 20 years. He has coached hundreds of people from around the world on how to make significant life changes and create habits that serve them well in achieving the goals they've set for themselves. In addition to his work as a behavior coach, he currently hosts the award-winning podcast, The One You Feed, based on the old parable about the two wolves that battle within us. With over 300 episodes and over 13 million downloads, the show features conversations with experts across many fields of study about how to create a life that has less suffering and more fulfillment and meaning. Welcome to our show, Eric. Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited that you have decided to do this interview with me. Your podcast has been one of my favorite shows. It's one that I recommend to friends often. I found it in a very critical part of my life, so I feel like it's been a huge help to different things that I've uh, struggled with before. So I appreciate all of the stuff that you've done with your podcasting. And I'm excited to know that you're doing coaching now as well with your podcast. But before we get into any of that, would you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I never really know how to answer this question because I don't know what people want to know. But I'm the host of the One You Feed podcast. I'm a behavior coach. I owned a solar energy company at one point. I have a son who's in college. I love to play the guitar and read. I am very into my spiritual practice. Right now I'm studying very closely with a Zen teacher. Hopefully that's a little snapshot of who I am. That's awesome. Well, and I'd love to hear, you know, as you begin your podcast, The One You Feed, it's based on a parable. Uh, I always heard it as kind of an, a Native American parable myself, but it goes something like this. The grandfather was talking to his grandson. The grandfather says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us, which are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness, bravery, and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed, hatred, 
hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and thinks about it for a second and then looks up at his grandfather and says, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather replies, the one you feed. I think it's great to hear you recite that parable each time. And then you always want to know, you know, what that parable means to your guests. So I'm just curious, like, as you started your podcast, you know, what does that parable of the wolf mean to you and what significance does it play in your life? Yeah, it's, it's a parable that I first heard in uh, early in my recovery from heroin addiction a long time ago, um, like 1995, probably. And it really spoke to me then. It was, it just, I think like any good parable, we hear it and we kind of immediately get, okay, on one level, I understand what this is saying. It's pretty clear, conveys a lot of meaning in a short time. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I love about your show though, that you see how it means different things to different people. And you can see how that parable can change for you over time as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think on one level, it's very clearly about choice, right? The way that we choose to spend our, our time and how we spend our mental energy, where we put our thoughts, those things to a large extent determine the quality of our lives. So on one level, pretty straightforward, the parable is. And then you're right. I've had 300 some people try and come up with something they want to say about it. And a lot of people are trying to come up with something original or unique to say. And so we've got a lot of different thoughts on what that parable means. And it, it has evolved for me over time. But, but it's always sort of at its core, it's been about that. It's been about, okay, my, my thoughts and actions matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And going back to that choice and uh, you talked about how you had this heroin addiction. I just want to know too, like, I guess your background in that and then how that led you to, you know, doing behavioral habit change and addiction and those kinds of things in your podcast. Mm-hmm. How did that lead you to your life's mission and message? Yeah, well, so long time ago at, at the age of 24, I did get, uh, I got sober from uh, from heroin and that was a huge turning point in my life, as, as anyone might imagine. I was, a pretty, I was in pretty bad shape. I weighed 100 pounds. I was looking wow. at going to jail for up to 50 years. I had hepatitis C. Um, I was homeless. I mean, things were not good. So I, I got clean or sober, however you want to refer to it. Back then, it was a long time ago. And then from there, kind of started into you know, my, my actual, actually having a career, because up to that point, I had no career. I was just a you know, a musician and a drug addict. And so I kind of got into the, the software space. And so I did that for a number of years. And then I actually went back out and I drank again and then got sober again. And so I stayed sober about eight years the first time, drank again for several years. And now I think I've been sober 13 or 14 years since then, since the second time. And, um, you know, and I would say is, you know, how I ended up where I'm at today is, if I look at it in a big picture, I think what happened is that my, my career trajectory evolved from let me do anything that anybody will pay me half decently for because I have no skills to now I got lucky enough to do work that is interesting to me. Now let me do work that's interesting and, um, you know, interesting and challenging. And then as time went on, let me do work that's meaningful And then finally, this work, I think, is the ultimate, is sort of the ultimate point for me of where, you know, meaning really became imbued in it. Doing the solar energy company was my first attempt at really doing something that I felt was meaningful. But what it didn't do, it it had the meaning for me, 
but I didn't have the same native interest in it that I have in behavior coaching, personal development, all those sort of things. So this sort of combines all the various aspects of what I'm good at, what I'm interested in, and also has meaning in life. But it took me a long time to get here. You know, it took me a long time of working my way through different sorts of jobs and ideas till I arrived at what feels like, at least for now, the right place. Well, and I love your podcast because you do, you're super authentic about who you are and then also that evolution and how that changes. And you cover anything from depression to, you know, uh, addiction, recovery, uh, let's see, anxiety, habits, and, and changing that behavior, um, meditation, mindfulness. Do you feel like there's an overall core idea or thread that ties them all together? I mean, yeah. why, why have you picked all those? I mean, that's, that seems kind of a broad scale in a way. Well, they're all, you know, the subtitle of the show is Practical Wisdom for a Better Life, right? And so all the things that I bring together, they have, they have two, I think, things in common. One is I'm interested in them and I think that the person has done some good work in that area or has something important to say in that area. So that's that's one. And then the second is that I somehow think it's going to be useful to the people who listen to the show. Yeah. So if it meets yeah. both those criteria, then that looks like it might be a guess. So there's lots of things I'm really interested in that I'm like, well, I can't figure out how that could possibly be useful to anybody on the show. So I don't have those people on. It might be an interest of mine, but we don't talk about it. And then there's obviously, um, you know, countless people who have, you know, important and useful messages. But if it doesn't really resonate with me, if I'm not really interested in it or the person, then they're not a good fit either. Because I prepare pretty diligently, right? I, almost every guest who's been on has, has, a, has a book and I always, at least one book, and I always read at least one of their books before they come on. So as a, as a pretty diligent preparer, I, I, uh, I obviously want to, whether I want to read their book or not is a frequent uh, reason why somebody would be. A <laughs> and do you read the book and then go, hmm, this person would be a good fit for no. the podcast? No, can't, I could never do it that way. Right? I just, there would never be time. It goes the other way around. It's almost always, I see a book that looks really interesting. I go see if I can get them to be a guest. And if they say yes, then I get to read the book. Wow. Well, because I just going the other way around would be I'm reading a book a week as it is. And so that's kind of my method, you know, and I it's easy. I mean, it's easy to find people to be on the show. I mean, I get I get I get upwards of 50 requests a week, probably of people who want to be guests. Um, so lots of people are coming in that way. And then I just, you know, I, in the beginning, what I did, I don't need to do it nearly as often now because it just sort of shows up for me. But I used to love to walk into a library or a bookstore, things I used to love to do and browse and be like, that looks interesting. That looks interesting. That looks interesting. And write down a bunch of names and go contact those people and see if they would be guests. And I still do that sometimes. Yeah. You hit the areas that you feel like, you know, you want to focus on and then it might be probably an easier way. Sometimes I'm searching the web looking for things that might be interesting or guests like that. Yeah. So yep. it's actually yep. a good way of doing it. That's awesome. Well, I'd love to hear too how your podcast has evolved from, you know, doing this podcasting to this is a full-time gig now for you. This isn't just a fun hobby like for me. Yep. How has that changed? Yeah, well, I think evolution is the right word, right? I started it as a hobby, as something I just thought would be fun to do and I thought would be good for me to do. And then it just, over time, it grew. And as it grew, you know, we started doing a little bit more and a little bit more until I, at one point, started to 
it allowed myself to at least dream that I could do this full time. I think before that I hadn't even wanted to let myself dream about it because it just didn't seem possible. And so then as it, as that happened, I began to, you know, after I started dreaming about it, then eventually at one point I started planning for it. And then the day came where, you know, I was able to leave my job and, and do this full time. And so, you know, a bunch of things had to happen. We had to grow the show to a certain size. The coaching business had to have a certain amount of revenue. We had to have a certain number of sponsors and donations. And so a lot of things just slowly evolved over a period of time that kind of got us to the point where I was able to, to do this. I was not in a position with having a son in college that I was really able to just be like, well, if I don't make any money, who cares, right? I knew I needed to continue to, to uh, make, a, make a certain income in order to keep him in school and live and all those things. So, so far, a year and a half in, we have made that work. When you keep saying we, mm-hmm. we've talked about how you have a, a helper in this. Is he a full-time person as well? Or, I mean, is this well, kind of your it, dream that he's helping you with? Or is this something that you're yeah, doing yeah. together? Well, there's, there's more we's than just Chris. So th- there's actually a number of different people who contribute in different ways. So Chris is the voice of the podcast in the, you know, he reads our guest intros and he does the intro and he does all the audio work. So he edits the podcast, all that stuff. Then there's me. And then there is Ginny and Ginny is, does all of our marketing and a lot of our content creation. So we've released a couple courses. She's, she's working on, you know, she creates that content. A lot of our, you know, every, every month we send out, um, you know, a couple emails that I try and make really valuable and have lots of useful information. We've got a really great newsletter every month. So she does all that sort of work. Okay, and you hired I, her or is she? Yeah, kind of, yeah, okay. no, she's, she's sort That's of awesome. full time. Yep. And um, she's actually also my life partner, which I've never, I don't really share very often. But yeah, she's my life partner and my partner in this. And then I have uh, a lovely woman named Nicole who is, uh, I, I started having her, she sort of acts as an assistant for me in some ways and that has been a huge help too. She's not full-time, she just does it part-time. So there's a number of people running around behind the scenes to make this whole thing work. That's awesome. I didn't realize that your platform was that big that you required all that extra help. So that's really great. And the fact that your partner can be helping you with the podcast does speak to a success too, because, you know, sometimes like with me, I have my husband's kind of carrying, you know, part of the load financially. So, well, the huge part of the load (laughs) financially. Right. It makes it much yeah. easier for me to think about doing, but wow, that's really awesome. I'd love to hear, so, you know, we've discussed some of your background with her- heroin addiction. I don't know why I can't say that, heroin addiction, <laughs> um, but I'd love to hear maybe how you feel like doing the One You Feed podcast and all the coaching is really helping you live your authentic life's mission. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I think my life's mission for as long as I've sort of been able to articulate it has been to sort of help reduce suffering in the world. That's been my mission. I didn't always know how to live it out. You know, when I was in 12-step programs, it was pretty clear I could work. You know, there's a lot of things you can do in 12-step programs. You can sponsor people. You can do all that stuff. And it was a chance for me to really do that, to help people to suffer less, um, to live better. Um, And so the show is just, is a very direct, 
way of, of making my whole life about that mission. You know, the, the podcast, you know, lots of people who listen to it and, and you're one of them. I think they listen to it because on some level it makes them feel better about some of the challenges that they have in their lives. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I, I, I do coaching work. So a, a significant portion of most of my days is spent talking with people on how to improve their lives and how to suffer less and to to do better. So it kind of all comes together. But I think that's kind of my mission. I never know whether to say like to suffer less, to feel better. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, as I, I said, the subtitle of the show is Practical Wisdom for a Better Life. So that kind of sums up my mission. My mission is to take, you know, the things that I learn and the, the lots of disparate ideas that are out there and try and put them together in packages for people so that they can live better lives. Yeah. And it is very practical, but I do love, I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted you on is I feel like I've learned a lot of really disruptive thoughts or, you know, different ideas of helping with success as far as my own mental health, for sure. You mentioned, you know, the suffering challenges and all of that. And we've talked about your past, but what do you feel like maybe some challenges are that you've had along the way? I mean, you've talked about, you know, coming back into alcoholism and then having to go work your way back out. But what challenges had you have along the way and what have you learned from that? Well, I would say my others, you know, if I had to look at like overall big life challenges that have happened over a period of time, you know, alcoholism and addiction has been a big one. But then the second one for me is depression. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something I have, I've had or dealt with or wrestled with or coexist with. I like that. Something I've coexisted with for a long, long time and still do to some degree. And so that's kind of been the other big one. I mean, along the way, I've had all the other problems that a lot of people have. I've had, well, maybe not when I say that all other people have had, not not all, but I've had bad marriages that I've been in that were really painful. I've had, you know, challenges career-wise with losing jobs. But but I would say, you know, I think depression has been the other the underlying thing. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, and I don't. I think it, you know, it's correlated to alcoholism and, and addiction for me. There, you know, there, there's a correlation there. But yeah, depression is the other is another big one for me. Now, my depression now compared to what it has been in the past is vastly different. It is way better, but it's still there sometimes, yeah. right? It still shows up. It comes to visit. Do you feel like that's what you've learned, that maybe it's always there, but you have figured out a way to work with it and not have it work against you in a way? I think, yes, I think that's a big part of what I've learned. I've learned, I think, how to, how to live with it in a uh, much more graceful and useful way and to have it take less from me than it used to. Yeah, so I think learning to relate to it differently has been a big part of the learning and learning for me what, what things make it less likely to show up. What are the ways that I can take care of myself that make it less likely I'm going to get depressed? And then when it does show up, how to cope with it in a more skillful way. Yeah. Do you feel like something that has been, you know, a huge maybe challenge for you, though, has helped to strengthen you in some ways as well? Yes. Yes. I mean, I think there's, I wouldn't be who I am and doing what I'm doing if I hadn't had the challenges that I have. And that includes depression and that includes alcoholism and addiction. Like I can't even start to fathom I can't even imagine who I would be without those things having been a part of my life. It's a nonsensical sort of question to me because 
I just don't know how I, you know, who would I be? What I, what would I have developed into? So yeah, I think so. And I, and I'm a big believer in, and something we talk about on the show a lot about how our most difficult situations can be some of our most transformative moments, you know, and I'm very interested in how do people take something that's really difficult and make it into something that, that makes them stronger and better. Yeah. Well, I was just listening to one of your shows and you were talking about failure and how, you know, when we know that that's going to be part of the picture that we're going to fall down and we're not going to necessarily do things perfectly, you know, right out of the gate, that that actually can be a huge, uh, I don't know, it can take a lot of the pressure off, you know, and that maybe when we do fail, that it brings us back even stronger I, I don't know if this was with, I'm trying to look at your, your website right now, if this was with Greg Markham or not, but where you talked about how that falling actually, it can give us more resolve to be a little bit more diligent in some of those practices, like you mentioned, where, where you're working with it, not having it work against you type of thing. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Failure is, um, is certainly one of those things that can make us stronger. And I'm, I'm really intrigued. And I ask a lot of guests this question about like, well, why is it that some people when they suffer, they seem to grow and become better people? And why do some people seem to become embittered and smaller people? Like what causes that to be different? I don't think anybody knows the full answer, but it's an interesting question. And it's something I'm really interested in. Well, it goes back to that parable, right, of the wolves, of uh, the two wolves, and one has those traits of kindness, the bravery and love, and the other is, you know, the greed, the fear, and the hatred, kind of the positive, maybe some positive traits versus the the more negative ones, although, you know, listening to your show, I, I've seen so many profound expansions of how the greed, the fear, and the hatred are also useful tools, as well as that kindness, bravery, and love. Well, they're they're human emotions, and human emotions usually have something that they can tell us, and the process of trying to repress them is not very useful. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Yeah. That's what I did for years is I, I was always trying to pull those more positive emotions up to the surface, but somehow all the negative ones still end up creeping up through if we don't acknowledge it and we don't know that we have that bad wolf inside of us, you know, sometimes he'll take over and we have no idea that that's happening until, you know, he's in a full, (laughs) full raging, uh, what, how to describe it, but he's there in a full raging contact type thing. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's well said. I'd love to hear, you know, we talked about even how the parables changed, how you've gone through a lot of these challenges and learned different things, but how do you feel like your paradigm has changed over time and with experience? Uh, What are some overall lessons that you've learned that has kind of evolved? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the lessons that has evolved for me to some degree is how much effort we put into trying to control the circumstances of our lives versus how much effort we put into trying to accept where we are and what life is like. I think that that's something that's sort of a needle that's always moving for me, but it's one that I pay a lot of attention to. And I think that earlier in the show, I was a little bit more gung-ho on the let's get out there and change things. Now, not in the let's, all right, I just need to make more money, but I think it was, I was a little bit more gung-ho on 
how do I make change in my own life? How do I do certain things that are going to make me healthier and happier and better? And I still believe in all those things. But I think along with it has grown an increasing understanding of when to not do as much, when to let go even more, and a deeper realization of the human condition and that there's going to be pain inside the human condition and that's not going to probably go away. So I think I've, I've had an easing of that. I would say the other thing I probably have learned a lot is to be kinder to myself on the inside, the way I talk to myself, the way I push myself, all of that. That's been a big learning I think I've gotten from the show. So those are a couple of the big ones. Yeah. Well, and like with uh, being kinder with yourself, sometimes you have no idea that's going on and just being able to recognize that the part that you have meditation and mindfulness as part of, you know, the platform of your show and your coaching stuff, I think is extremely beneficial. I think I heard it on your show that control is, it's that number one addiction that we all have. You know, we think we are going to have control over this or that, but really it comes down to just under understanding where we are in the moment and being able to appreciate it, but then always striving for maybe a better result for that better life that we're all seeking <laughs> in a way. So, Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think uh, on a recent show when we were talking about that, you know, he, one of the things that someone said was, you know, we don't give up control. We give up the illusion of control. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people tend to often come down too far on one side or the other on this issue. They either believe that everything is controllable or they believe that almost nothing is controllable. And I think that it's somewhere in the middle there, right? And that's why I love the serenity prayer so much because it says, look, take some real wisdom to know the difference between what we can change and what we can't. Yeah. And if we can change it, we need to get after it. And if we can't, then we really just need to let it go as to the best of our ability. And, you know, getting that balance right, finding that wisdom is so important because if we're spending all our energy trying to change things, we can't. We just run out of gas, right? And if we're then, on the other hand, trying to accept things that we have the ability to change, then we're just it's a state of apathy to some degree that we're just letting things go by that, that could make our lives better. And so it is a real wisdom to know the difference. I mean, some things are really obvious, but a lot of things in life just aren't. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the dangers I see in our society anymore is that we're looking for the label, but then the label ends up being a crutch, either a crutch that we can't get over or a way that it's holding us back. I think the label is important because like you said, once you understand what you're working with, then it's much easier to work with it instead of against it. But how many of us really work with it anymore? We just let it take over, you know, that that's just how we are. I mean, and I feel like that's kind of what you're saying is that, you know, we have to know what we can control and, and move forward with or what we need to let be type of thing. Yeah. I mean, how do you feel about that? Like with the labeling, um, you know, I've, I found it helpful to finally have a label, but then, like I said, yeah. I, I didn't want to use that label to constantly be a jackass. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, my partner and I talk about this a lot because she's very, very interested in in personality tests and the Enneagram and even astrology and, and, you know, all these different ways of sort of categorizing ourselves. And I used to be more interested in that, but I've become a little bit more wary of it later. Um, and so I think it's a, here I go again on the middle way, right? I think there's a middle ground, right? Because on the positive side, labels and diagnosis 
help us to understand what's going on. When I realized that my problem was truly heroin addiction, that was a great understanding, right? Because now, okay, I have a diagnosis. I can go work on that. When I realized, oh, I have clinical depression, that's a diagnosis. I can go work on that. When I read that I'm an Enneagram type nine and I see some of those categories, I go, oh yeah, I do see some of that. And that's the positive side. The negative side is those things can hem us in, right? Yeah. I can start to see like, oh, well, you know, I'm an addict. That's just who I am. You know, I'm, I'm always an addict or, you know, I'm a person who always has depression. I'm depressed. So, and a big part of my spiritual life has been about learning to let go of identity a whole lot more. And so labels are one of the ways we build an identity. I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, I'm not this, I'm not that. And so I think but they're it, useful it, it, to a point. I think yeah, they're really it stops our learning yeah. when we find ourselves needing to kind of come out of that a little bit. Yeah, and I see it a lot in coaching work with people where they believe they're a certain way and they then tend to live their way right into that. You know, I'll yeah, get people true, who come true. to me who say like, well, I'm just lazy and undisciplined. And I'll say, well, I don't know if that's really true. You know, behavior change is a skill and we start making good change and things are going really well. And then as is inevitably going to happen with everybody who's trying to change a behavior, they start to slide backwards. And their brain immediately in that moment goes, see, I told you, I told you you couldn't do it. I told you you were lazy. I told you you were undisciplined. Why did you think it would be different this time? And all of a sudden now, what is a little minor blip on the radar, if we're not careful, becomes a complete unraveling of all the good things we've done. Yeah. That's an example of a, an identity that is not helpful. And then on the other hand, you can talk about identities that are helpful. Like there, there's studies that show that people who say, I've given up smoking, do less well than people who say, I don't smoke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the James Clear. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. James Clear. Yeah, James Clear talks about that identity. So, so I think I love. We've had several um, people on the show, Stephen C. Hayes and Russ Harris, who are founders of something called Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one yeah. of the things they talk about in that that I love is they say we should judge a thought by whether it's useful or not, whether it's true or not. Because, I mean, most thoughts aren't true or untrue. They're a story, they're a perception, they're an opinion, right? And I think that, is it useful or not, is a really great frame to use also for these labels and identities. At what point is this label being useful and propelling me forward? And at what point is this label constricting me and and causing me to not be able to grow and change? Yeah, because sometimes we might be able to move past the label to the point of, you know, a healthier, better life in a way, more so than we would have thought with the label. Exactly. Yeah, that's, yep. that's true. I love that. So you said your tagline is practical wisdom for a better life. But there are a lot of things I feel like that you are doing that are very disruptive. What do you think is very unique or disruptive about your podcast as well as your coaching? That's a great question. I don't, unique ideas that you're bringing to yeah, the table. Yeah, I, I, I read enough and have read enough that I don't, you know, I feel like unique ideas, there's, there's not a whole lot of them. They're hard to come by. And so I don't, that's a hard question for me because I don't tend to think of myself as a disruptor. I also don't think of myself as a mass conformist either. You know, I think what I'm bringing in my coaching is... I think the value that I bring to this whole, the whole thing that I do is I think I am sort of uh, relentlessly curious 
Mm-hmm. And I have the ability to, to bring in a lot of information and sift it out and come out with some patterns and ideas and synthesis that I then think I'm able to convey in ways that are, that are fairly useful. And I think my life experience um, corresponds well with that. So like for behavior change as an example, I think that what makes me good at what I do there is that I've studied all the main behavior change people. You know, there's James Clear out there, there's BJ Fogg, there's John Norcross, there's Tim Pitchell, there's uh, Porshaka, there's all kinds of stuff on behavior change out there. So I've studied all of that. And then I have my own life of dealing with addiction and all of that. And I think I'm able to synthesize all that into something that's useful. And I think the other thing that I do, and again, none of this is really disruptive, but I also think that I'm really good at hearing people and being able to tailor what I'm doing to what they need, where they are. I'm not a big believer that like one size fits all with coaching. Like I don't have like, I'm going to walk you through this six step program. And after those six steps, you're going to be this way because everybody is really so different. And I think I'm pretty good at seeing what people need. So I've got this big treasure chest of things. And I think I'm pretty good about rummaging into it and pulling out a few things. And I go, I think this is going to fit you really well. And I don't know if that's really disruptive, but I think it's what I, what I do. Well, I I think our world is very much like that, where we want a perfect formula that's going to walk us through, you know, to our better life, (laughs) where I do feel like that's a disruptive thought, because so much of what, I mean, what we're seeing in society, like I said, is a lot of labels, a lot of like, this is how you do it, you know, this is the perfect path, and I do feel like that that is a disruptive thing because what you're saying, you're able to take a lot of different things and kind of mesh it together for something that's unique for that particular individual, which I think is amazing because education, you know, for instance, as well, we think that this is the way a person needs to be educated or to be educated properly. But now we're seeing, oh, wow, well, this type of schooling might work for one person or this way that they do it would work better for another person. You know, I've I've seen that with my kids that I have, that they all have different ways of doing things. Yeah. And and maybe that's what I like about what you discuss is that I feel like I come out with so many unique ideas of, you know, how to deal with a number of things. Like I said, my own, even, even spirituality, I've learned so much from your show, like what are some good spiritual practices that maybe fit within my own religion, but it's helped me to take what's useful in my religion and and then throw out what isn't serving me, what isn't helping for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you mentioned this middle way. It's something that you often talk about on your show. And how do you feel like finding kind of the middle way has really helped you in your life? Yeah, it's funny that I'm such an advocate for the middle way. Well, I guess you you become I mean, maybe tell us where it comes from. And then well it's it originally so it comes from everywhere. I originally heard it from Buddhism and, and oftentimes, you know, it's described Buddha found the middle way, right? Buddha was originally a rich prince who lived in a castle and had everything. He had everything you would want in the world. He had all the worldly success. And then he went to the other extreme and he became an ascetic and he wandered the forests and he barely ate and he did all sorts of awful practices and nearly died doing that. And eventually it said the Buddha sort of found the middle way that living 
a life that's based on just satisfying your desires, well, that's not the right thing, nor is trying to beat every desire out of you completely. And so he found the middle way. But, so that's where I heard it. But if you go back and you start looking, it's, you know, Aristotle talked about it. Confucius talks about it. It's there in Islam. This idea of a golden mean, a middle ground, mm-hmm. is, shows up over and over and over throughout history. It comes down to self-control in a way like uh, I even find that in Christianity, you know, that that we have to have some of that that self-discipline, but we can't totally deny ourselves of things either because that's not that's not helpful at all either. Yeah. And I, so I think the middle way applies in all kinds of contexts. I find myself coming back to it over and over and over again with things. Um, we, can look at the, we, we can look at the middle way with character traits, right? We tend to think of character traits as either good or bad, but they tend to fall on a spectrum, right? Like take courage, right? Too much courage and you're an idiot, right? <laughs> yeah. Too little courage and you're cliffs. a coward. Yeah, and you're a coward. So what's the right amount in there, right? We've got to find this middle ground on those things. And it's funny that somebody who spent the first part of his life being so extreme, and I still have some, I have a tendency towards a great deal of, let's say, enthusiasm, which is a better way than saying obsession and, and, and all that. And so I find the middle way, though, sort of consistently points me back. And I think we often get ourselves in trouble when we move out of that, right? Like, very practically, like, let's look at relationships when we are saying to our the people in our lives you always do this or you never do that that's not true and that gets us into trouble that's not the middle way people don't always do something and people don't never do something else usually right it's more nuanced than that and most things in life are are more nuanced you know we talked about it earlier as far as the the serenity prayer right like thinking you you can control everything is a problem and thinking you can control nothing is also a problem yeah Exactly. Then it leaves us either powerless or always seeking power. We're never in that that good middle spot. So do you feel like that's how you define success in your life of being able to come to the middle way of most ideas? Or do you have another definition of what you feel like success is in your life? Yeah, I don't know that I would say that I think finding the middle way is success because I think it's a tool. I think it's, well, actually, I don't even think it's a tool. I think it's a perspective. And I think that being able to adopt different perspectives is an incredibly useful way to live our lives, right? I think we get into a lot of trouble when we only have one or two perspectives. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the way we always see things. So the middle way is just another perspective. So no, I don't. I, I wouldn't measure success by that. I think success, you know, measuring success, boy, that's a that's always a tricky one. Um, it's obviously not the same for everybody. And I don't think it's always the same. I think it's similar to purpose. I think purpose is not this static thing that sits out there. I think it's something that changes. My purpose has certainly changed over time and I fully expect it will again. So, I mean, I think success is about feeling like life is meaningful. I'm more a meaningful kind of person than I am a happiness kind of person. Maybe that's because I'm not real great at being happy. I don't know. But, <laughs> but, but no, I, I tend to think that meaningfulness for me is a deeper sort of satisfaction, a deeper way of, of living. So I would say, you know, success to me is, do I feel like life is meaningful? Do I feel like I'm doing things that matter? You know, another term I think that is 
sits at the heart of all this stuff is connection. Do I feel connected? And what, what people feel connected to can be lots of different things. But usually when people are connected to things, they would say, yes, I'm successful. Life is good. And when they're disconnected, they would not, they would not say that. They would yeah. feel like life is missing something. They would feel off balance. They would slip into depression or anxiety or addiction or lots of other things. So I think connection's kind of important. So I'll use that. I think success is being connected in life to the things that matter to you. How about yeah. that? Yeah. Well, that's, I just threw that question out to you. Like you're my, you're my first guest I've ever talked about success in life, but I feel like for many years I was living what other people would think was success in a life, but I didn't feel happy or I didn't feel connected is probably what it came down to. But I've kind of started to realize like we all have a different definition of success. And I like to hear, you know, what you would feel like, what does success look like in your head <laughs> type of thing. And, and then once you, you kind of tame that. Uh, but I guess that's what I also love about your podcast is that I think you are always talking about how life is kind of a journey and that we take it you know, one step at a time and we're not necessarily coming to an end of all. I mean, like we talked about with depression, like we're just kind of trying to have a good balancing act where it's not taking over our lives. Uh, and some days is better than other days. You know, it's not like sure. you're like, I've arrived, <laughs> you know, type of thing. But but I like to hear that. Do you feel like the ideas of reframing or to be able to reframe those ideas or your thoughts or your direction has helped more with that balance and understanding where connection plays into success into your life? Kind of going back to that paradigm change. Yes. Being able to come to a, a place where that flexes and moves a little bit instead of being such a hard, you know, yes. that's the direction yeah. I have to go. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. I think, you know, being able to try on different lenses or, or see the world through different perspectives is really important in trying to see what is meaningful to us and what success looks like. Because as you said earlier, if we don't, if we don't ask these questions for ourselves and we don't think about them and we don't look at them from different angles until we feel like we've landed at what's right for us. We're living someone else's life or story. Mm -hmm. And our culture is happy to provide one. Yes. Our culture is very, you know, now that sounds like the culture is this monolithic thing, which it is not, but we live in a Western society that is. It does have a definition of a success though. I feel like it does. It does. There, there, or at least there's a definition of success that is promoted out through the various forms of culture. And if we're not careful, we just adopt them. I mean, it's one of the reasons I felt like I had to do this show was for me, because if I'm not putting a lot of these ideas into my head, then I'm receiving the cultural messages and then I start getting sick. Yeah. Right. I start thinking it is all about how much money I make, how good I look, how good my partner looks. You know, I, I just start taking that on. I'm susceptible to it. For me, it's important that I have something else I put in its place and that I limit the amount of that stuff that I take in. And I think that is like I've realized over time, I used to, you know, I feel like I used to be very judgmental, like, well, people who watch TV and I, I got to a point where I went, you know what, just for me, maybe other people aren't that susceptible to it, but I am. 
Yeah. I'm the one that sees the beer commercial. Now I don't immediately think I need a beer, but I'm the one who sees the beer commercial and goes, gosh, look at their life. They're out at the beach and they're all beautiful. And God, you know, and then what, what's the matter with me? I'm sitting here in gloomy Columbus, Ohio on a Saturday <laughs> night, you know, reading a book, like, come on, you know? And so I think if we're not asking these questions ourselves and inquiring deeply, then we are living some other life. We're on autopilot and my version of autopilot is not a good one. Some yeah. people would be, but mine's not. Yeah. Well, and that's where depression comes into it too. I think when you, you have that susceptibility, if you're a person that struggles or, you know, has clinical depression, I mean, I know for me, I'm pretty susceptible to it as well because, you know, I'm already having a battle inside my brain of how, of how good or, you know, whatever I am to me. Uh, but I feel like if we have an understanding of a, like, um, that's really not happiness. You know what I mean? That, that kind of life that we see wouldn't make me happy. I feel like uh, that kind of helps with that susceptibility as well. But, you know, if we, yeah. if we have that question of like, well, what is success to me? And I feel like maybe that's why people, I mean, you go to the grocery store or wherever and you can't get somebody to smile at you is that we're all living somebody else's definition of success, but it's not really something that's helping to serve us in a better way. Yeah. Yeah. The world, the world is a, the world is a challenging place for sure. Yeah, sure. And, well, and I, susceptibility also has something to do with sensitivity, right? People who are more sensitive tend to be more susceptible to these things. And I think people who are very sensitive, there's a different personality makeup. And I think a lot of people who listen to my show resonate strongly with that sort of idea of being pretty sensitive. Oh yeah, I would definitely agree with that. That's kind of how I like the the sensitive versus, you know, using our depression or whatever, but yeah, definitely people that are are sensitive to things. They, you know, have to work on that a little bit more than somebody who's not as sensitive. I like that. Okay. Well, I'd love to hear maybe about what kind of coaching you offer and what success you've seen with it. You said that you do a lot of coaching and you've talked about online classes as well. Do you do a good split of that or, you know, what does it's that mostly, look like? It's mostly one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, although we had an online, we released an online course way back when about stress and we did a workshop called Spiritual Habits, which I'll be developing or I'll be doing again in the spring. But most of it's one-on-one -on -one coaching and I, I think it tends to fall into a couple of main categories. A lot of it is what I call behavior change work. People are like, I want to do this, this, and this, and I just can't seem to do it. I can't stick with it. I want to meditate, exercise, and eat well, and I just don't. I start and then I stop. I start and I stop. Or yeah. I, want to, I want to get ahead at work. I know what I need to do, but I just I end up spending half the day uh, on ESPN.com. Yeah. Or so, so a lot of it's just basic behavior change stuff, right? For other people, it's more of a something just doesn't feel right. Like, uh, and this is a lot of people who who have a lot of what they think they wanted, right? They've got a job that pays fairly well. They've got a family. They've got mm -hmm. a house. They've got all that. And yet they just, they don't necessarily feel happy or content, yeah. feel like something's missing. Um, so I do a lot of work with people like that. And then I also do some work with other people who have an online business or presence um, who are trying to grow it and do it you know, full-time. So I, you know, I've got a couple of clients I work with right now who are also coaches and they're like, well, how do I, you know, I can't seem to grow my coaching business. So I, you know, I'll also help people 
people do that or, you know, people who are doing sort of transformational work in the world, how to market and sell that a little bit, which is something I've sort of learned to do over the years. So those are the main areas of coaching. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I like how you said that something doesn't feel right because that's what I was kind of meaning with that definition of success, you know, that they're doing all the things that we're told should bring us, you know, peace yes. maybe. And we're not feeling that that's there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you definitely help them maybe redefine what might feel peaceful to them. Um, yeah. That yeah. might be their definition of success. Definitely. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's about finding, yeah, in a lot of cases it is, it's, it's about that connection. You know, a lot of times the things that we need or want in life are there. We're just not connecting to them somehow. Yeah, something's missing. Or, yeah, the, something's missing or we're blocked or usually we're so focused on the next thing that we don't see what's already right here. And, you know, God knows I'm, you know, I can be as guilty of that as the next person. But we live with this, you know, if then mind, right? Which is if I get this, then I'll be happy. When I mm -hmm. get this, then I'll be happy. And then what happens for some of us is we get it. And then not too long after we go, well, I'm not really any happier. But instead of really examining the underlying premise, we just go, oh, I guess what I got wasn't enough. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. found I, I can't do that to my husband either. You know, he'll be working on a project and as soon as he gets done, I'm like, oh, that looks great. Oh, well, when we get this part done, you know, and then he's like, let's just bask in the moment here of having yeah. nothing done. Yeah. It's a, good, it's, a good it's a good habit to have, to be yeah. able to to pause and enjoy, you know, kind of where we are, what's happening. And the problem with these things is that they do make us happy, but just not for very long. If they didn't work at all, nobody would do them, right? Yeah. If getting a new car didn't make you happy for a little while, no one would be pulled by it. You know, if having a, a better looking body didn't make you happy for a little bit, then we wouldn't fall for it. But the problem is they do work for a little bit, but then we adapt to it. We adapt to it. And once we adapt to it, we need something else to make us happy. And some of that is just built in. I think that's some of nature in general. It's just this growing, moving forward thing. You see it everywhere in every creature and in, in every sort of situation. Well, and that can be a positive. I mean, that's how exactly. civilization has evolved. That's, because... right. that's right. Yeah. And so some of it is baked in. And so, and one of the questions I've explored on the show a lot, I haven't explored it as often lately, I guess, because I feel like maybe I've lived my way into it more. But I used to ask all the time people, you know, how do you balance between ambition and striving and accepting things just the way they are and where you are? And I was looking for somebody to say, well, you do this, or you do that. And, you know, of course, nobody could answer that question until I sort of realized, like, I have to find a way to sort of do both at the same time. And that sounds weird. How do you do that? It's always, it's always yeah, that it, mindfulness, again, of being appreciative right. of where you're at in the moment, but then maybe a goal to go, okay, now I want to move here, you know, like yep. playing and, a, a game. Yeah. And what's driving us to move forward, right? Some of this is, you know, James Clear articulates this really well. He talks about the, you know, the process versus the goal, right? If all we're focused on is the goal, then everything up to that point, it doesn't have a lot of meaning and we're just getting through something to get to the next thing. But if we start to become in love with the process, then we're enjoying it along the way. You know, I've been training on like an indoor cycling machine, right? And 
I'm training, but I'm not doing it because I'm trying, I'm trying to get better, but I'm, I'm not trying to get anywhere in particular. I just enjoy the process of it. Same way with like learning to play guitar. I mean, I've been playing guitar a long time, but learning to get better, practicing guitar to get better. I'm not doing it because there's this like, oh, I'm going to hit this point where I can just play. Once I can play this song, then I'll be happy. I just realized that's not it. It's the, it's the process. It's the, it's the doing it. And if we can start to love what we're doing along the way, and we don't do it only to get to the goal, then all of it sort of works out. Then it's easy to strive and have ambition and accept and be happy where we are at the same time. But if our whole life is, is all about getting somewhere else, then, you know, it just doesn't work. I mean, it works for survival and it's kind of built into us, but it doesn't work for being happy yeah. or, or having a lot of peace. Yeah. Living that better life <laughs> for sure. Like the, yeah. the side where you feel, you feel like you've kind of arrived in that where, you know, there's yeah. that peaceful feeling. Well, yeah, and you, another you, one you, of those middle way things, right? Yeah. If, if you are, if all you are is ambitious and striving, then we see people like that, right? And then if on the other hand, all you are is like, yeah, whatever, dude, I'm cool where I'm at. We, you know, life doesn't- Nobody likes to hang around with that person either. Yeah, <laughs> life doesn't really evolve in any meaningful way. And so, you know, I think the people that we look at and admire are the people who have married those things together in some way. People who seem to have been like, their ambition and their striving takes a form, but they also seem like they're genuinely content and happy people most of the time where they are. And we look at people like that often and we, we, we look up to them. Yeah, those are the people that I like to hang out with, people that have, that have arrived in some sense of you know, feeling successful in their life, but then they're always striving for maybe something else as well, you know, that yeah. they're still learning maybe. I mean, if you were going with the learning podcast. Yes, yes learning, yes, yes. Learning is a great metaphor for that because learning is, you know, learning is a, you're trying to grow and change and and yet, you know, I think the people who learn the most are the people who genuinely just love doing it. Yeah. You know, you can learn something so you, you know, like I'm one of those people that like, I'm almost never happier than when I'm learning something. Yeah. It's not what I get at the end of the day, yeah, although yeah. that's always nice. It's the process. Yeah. That's what I love about, um, I have a phrase called illuminated learning and it's just a, the learning that we, you know, whatever our passion is in life is that when we're learning it, we just feel like we're lit up on the inside. You know, yeah, that's that. about that is bringing us immense joy. That's helping to light us up just naturally propels us forward sometimes if we get in that zone whatever we're learning that we're able to i mean we go without sleep sometimes without eating because we're so enthralled with what we're learning in that area which yeah, that's a great up. phrase i really like that that's so. a great concept well I, i'd love to hear more about habits and we we kind of <laughs> talked about that with coaching what habits do you feel in your personal life had been really helpful to you well my I think it was my foundational habits are exercise, eating well, meditating, and connecting with other people to some degree. Those four things I feel like are fundamental to what I do. So I, I don't do them all every day, but what I shoot for, and I often share this with coaching clients, I say, you know, what I'm after is about 90% adherence to whatever the goal is here. But being able to do that month after month, year after year, right? So if I'm doing 
over a year, you know, I can still miss like, you know, 36 days of meditation and still hit 90% for the year. And I've been doing that, that level pretty much for like six years. You know, if my goal is to exercise six days a week, you know, I'm shooting for like 90% of that is what I'm after. Again, over a long period of time. And so that's an important piece with habit because perfectionism gets in the way of people a lot. Yeah, that's when that goes with that control in yeah. a way, I feel like. We want to be able to control how precisely perfect everything is going. And that's, you know, sometimes if it doesn't go perfect, we feel like we've lost that sense of control in a way. And it won't. It yeah. won't. Go. I mean, my experience of helping hundreds of people try and do these different, you know, behaviors is it will not go perfectly unless you happen to just have a life that has complete predictability to it. But most people don't. I was right? going to say, have you ever met anybody like that? <laughs> no, I'd like to I, meet no, them. No, I haven't. Sometimes you'll find people right out of college who are unattached, who have a, a job, no kids, no real girlfriend, no real family commitment. They kind of con they're pretty much in control of almost all of their time. You'll occasionally will find people like that. But for the vast majority of people, and particularly people whose careers get demanding, who have kids, who have all that stuff there's no predictability. So just as sure as you can be, you're going to work on building an exercise habit and then it's just going to fall apart. You're going to be doing great and then your kids are going to get sick and you're going to get sick and three days are going to go by and nothing happens. And this is sort of what we talked about a little bit earlier is that that's when people, I see people start saying, see, you couldn't stick with it. I knew you couldn't stick with it, right? Instead of expecting, like, that's a big part of what I teach people and why my coaching program is, is a multi-month commitment is because inevitably we're going to fall off track a little bit. How we get back on is really important and there's skills and ways to do that. Um, knowing how to do that is sort of the key to, to making change long-lasting. And so for me, those four habits that I talk about, I, I think I'm doing, you know, 90% or better on those habits kind of over and over and over and over again, because those are my four sort of foundational habits. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I got the percentage thing from you, but I've actually been doing that lately where I keep a, a good journal of what my goals are. And, and then I do a percentage of like, oh, I ate healthy, you know, I ate my meals this many times this week. And, and like you said, sometimes you fall off track because you have different things come in, but at least you have that a percentage. If you're living at a higher percentage of your life, you tend to feel like, oh, I've kind of got this, you know, I can, I can do it, but it doesn't derail you if you have something like that happen. Like I'm just staring at a fortune that's taped to my monitor that says, don't let unexpected situations throw you. But when you're yeah. expecting complete perfection, that will throw you, you know? For sure. For sure. And I think the measuring it over a long enough period of time is what, what really matters. Yeah. It's often people talk about balance too. And I, you know, I'll say, well, balance is not that it's unattainable, although perfect balance is unattainable. Balance is, is an important idea, uh, but it needs to be measured over a longer period of time because in the, in the swing of a week, like if your kids are sick that week, then you're going to be out of balance because your kids are going to get way more of the attention than your job does. As an example, most, a lot of people are talking about work-life balance. There mm -hmm. might be other weeks there's a big project at work and that takes most of the, the time. And so that week looks out of balance. But hopefully as you look at it over a month, six months, etc., you start to see like, okay, in the broad picture, I'm balanced, but it's really hard to be balanced 
day by day. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just that 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 starts to that'll drive us a little bit crazy. Yeah, kind of like with Stephen Covey, he talks about at least putting money in each one of those accounts so yes. that you're like overdrawn in one area or the other. So. One of my one of my favorite analogies. I love Stephen Covey, and I love that book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yeah. Yeah. Total, total classic. So I'd love to hear where you hope this is going. You know, what are your long-term goals and how does that work into the legacy that you hope to leave behind? I have always been terrible at long-term goals and legacy, to be honest. I don't have, I don't really have one. I want to continue to do work that feels meaningful and that I enjoy and helps other people, you know, and I want to continue to grow myself you know, I'm mainly interested in my in my spiritual growth at this juncture more than other areas. But, you know, my goal is to, yeah, I mean, I don't have specific ones. I want to remain healthy and vibrant and contributing to the world in whatever way makes sense at that time. So I don't have, I'm, not, I'm not good at that. <laughs> uh, do you feel like though, like you talked about, like right now you're in kind of working on your spiritual side, do you feel like you kind of go back and forth between different areas of your life and that as you've gotten older, maybe you're able to meld them together a little bit, a little bit more fluidly um, in a way? Yes, a way? yes, absolutely. I do think that as I've gotten older, I've sort of figured out how to put them all together. There was a period of my life where I felt like I could never get exercise, meditation, and eating right. I could never get all three of them. I could mm-hmm. get two of the three or one of the three, and I could do that one really well, but I could never get all three of them. And somewhere along the line, five or six years ago, I feel like I cracked the code on that. Um, and I think I've learned to, yeah, I think I've learned to feed the different parts of my life in a, in a more equal way than I used to. So yeah, I think that's true. But, but the balance, like you said, it's, it's always kind of a tilting one way or the other. It, always, always. It's like a scale, right? A scale never stays, like, you know, if we look at like, you're trying to weigh two things on like one of those old fashioned scales, it's always, you know, there's just a slight bit of, slight bit of movement in it. And I feel like it's always that way. And it's why, you know, one of the, in the, in the intro of the show, you know, there's a phrase that says it takes constant, consistent and creative effort to make a life worth living, right? We're, mm-hmm. We always have to be at it. You know, yeah. that's one of the things is it, we don't hit a point where it's just like, well, all right, it's done. I don't need to put effort into life anymore. That's not the way it goes. And it's not even that way with habits. I think that's why a lot of people get so intrigued with the idea of a habit is like, oh, well, I'll just do it. And then 21 days, it'll happen automatically. And that's not really- And you'll never have to worry about it again. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really the way those things work. Certainly, the more you do something, the easier it becomes and it becomes more consistent. But life always takes effort. It always takes, you know, consistent sort of showing up. And, you know, I think that we are at any point in life, we always have to be sort of saying, what's important to me? What matters? And am I living that out in my life? That sort of that that loop, what's important, what matters? And am I really living it in life? For people who are, I think, to lead a good life, you, you need to be doing that far more regularly than most of us do. Yeah, exactly. Well, you talked about some of those habits that you have and you mentioned meditation. I, I'm only asking this because I really do not do well with meditation. What have you found to kind of be able to meditate? I mean, in our world anymore, we always have something, some kind of alarm or something going off. 
I, I mean, I guess just shutting that stuff off, but how do you, yeah. how do you get to that place of good meditation? Do you feel like? Well, the pla- the way you get to the place of good meditation is you meditate often. And so what that, what that implies is you're going to spend a lot of time that doesn't feel like good meditation. Yeah. <laughs> I was an on again, off again meditator for 20 plus years. Like I would, I'd start and I'd stick with it for a day, a week, a month, maybe, maybe two months. And then it would fall away. And then a little while later, I'd pick up another book that would convince me of how useful and important meditation is. And I would do that for a day, a week, a month, whatever. And then I would fall off. This went on for 20 years until about, like I said, about six years ago, I've been pretty close to a daily meditator 90% of the time. I made a couple of key changes. One was I stopped caring about how well I did at it. I completely let go of, am I doing this well? And went to a, almost like a pass-fail grading system. Pass is I sat down and did it. Fail is I didn't. That's it. There's no A, B, or C in there. Like, I had to let that go. And I had to, I had to let go of the fact that if I wasn't keeping my mind focused, that I was failing. Because most of us can't keep our mind focused in the beginning. I think our mind isn't meant to just be quiet either. You know what it's I mean? Not. Like, and, and actually, that's not even the goal of meditation necessarily is that your mind shuts off. Now, a steadiness of mind and more concentration is, is a benefit and is helpful in, in a lot of different things. But no, the brain thinks. It's what it does. You know, your glands secrete things. Your brain secretes thoughts. Like, that's what it does. And so... If we sit down to meditate and we think that it should be quiet in there, then it's going to frustrate us and we're going to feel like we're terrible at it. And who wants to do something that you fail at literally every three seconds? Yeah. Well, and maybe a lot of us, like that goes back to what our definition of, you know, meditation might look like in our head, you know, that perfect idea of what it looks like. And that's right. What you're saying is that there's really no right way of doing it. You don't have to be sitting on a yoga mat, you know, in the Zen position or something like that, that you have to, you just need to just be doing it every day, whether it's sitting at your desk or yeah, it depends how serious you want to be about it and what you want to get out of it. There seems to be some benefit to certain postures. There seems to be some benefit to doing it in certain places at certain times. But more than anything, it's doing it. And so, you know, I, I found that I had to, t- what I, one of the big things that changed for me was that, and it's this fun, it's this thing, which is for most types of meditation, We have some sort of anchor object. It could be our breath. It could be a mantra. It could be a sound that we're trying to rest our mind on. And then our mind wanders away inevitably and we bring it back to that thing. What I used to do was when my mind would wander away and I would catch it, I would go, darn it. I was thinking again. (laughs) What I've learned to do now, and I don't do it perfectly because I've got a lot of years of bad training. But the way I look at it now is when I catch it, I go, yes, I caught it. I woke up. Because in that moment, I woke up out of my thinking and I remembered what I wanted to do. And so then I just go back to it. So I started treating that moment of catching my mind having wandered off as positive. Yeah. Because then I'm training myself to do it. But on the other hand, like I said, if all I'm doing is I'm failing, I'm failing. Nobody wants to do it. 
So that was the first big change I made in meditation. And secondly, was I started with a very small amount of time. So I used to always, I'd read, you should meditate for 30 minutes. So I'd always try 30 minutes, which was way too long for me. So I started by doing it for three minutes and I focused on doing, but I was like, all right, every day I can do three minutes every day. There's no reason I can't do three minutes. And that was a small enough amount that I could do it. And once that is a little bit consistent, then I can go to four minutes and five minutes and six minutes and, and build up. And I still do the same thing. If I fall off for a couple of days and I'm finding meditation hard, I'll give myself permission to drop the time back. I don't usually go all the way back to three minutes because I've been doing it a long time. But if I've been doing 30 minutes, I'll be like, you know what? I'll do 20 today because it feels hard and I'll allow myself to build back up. So starting way smaller and focusing on consistency really helps too. Yeah, kind of goes back to those atomic habits like James yeah. Clear talks about where, you know, just make it as easy as possible at the beginning and focus on just doing it versus, you know, doing it perfectly or doing it to a certain amount of, you know, of time, just making it as simple as easy yeah. as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, yeah, just, just show up and do it every day and, and don't worry about the results. Be really, really easy on yourself as you do it. And, you know, because I think of what a lot of people do is they go back to identity, right? I can't meditate. My brain's too busy to meditate. Well, you know, some people's brains settle down quicker than others. I can assure you mine does not. (laughs) And yet I've done a lot of time in week long silent retreats. And so you know, I, I was as bad a meditator, if we want to use that word, as anybody out there, right? And there are still days now, you know, six years later and doing pretty intensive practice that I sit down and I think all my mind does for the whole time I'm there. It's like, there it went again, come back, there it went again, come back, there yeah. it went again. I'm like, what? Okay, guess that's the way it is today. Yeah. Sometimes your to-do list takes over and you're Absolutely. <laughs> Going off. Absolutely. I have certainly have found if I can get up in the morning and do exercise and meditation before I look at email or my calendar, I'm better off. Yeah. I don't always do that. I can't always resist the temptation. But if I can, my mornings are much better because once that whole engine starts up, it's a little bit harder to shut it off. So that helps me, but I'm not always successful at it. That's great. Before we do our parting advice and giving us your contact information, I'm looking through your website. I'm not seeing like, you know, I know you do coaching and you have memberships and stuff. Do you have prices or do you just have to talk to somebody and kind of figure out you know, where they're at before you? I mean, I see your membership levels of stuff you receive if you join that level, but yeah. what about coaching yeah. as far as pricing? Um, yeah, coaching pricing, it depends what the person once, but, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm not hiding anything either. My standard program is, it's a six-month program. We talk once a week. We email with each other every single day about what people are working on. So it's pretty intensive and we have a lot of time together. And there's also an ongoing support after that six months that I make available. The cost for that six-month program and the ongoing support right now is $2,500. That sounds interesting. Okay. Yeah. Now, some people, if they, you know, there are people that I will work with uh, for less time than six months, which means it would not cost as much. There are people I will work with less intently than every, than emailing every single day. So if we start to tailor things for people's needs, then sometimes, you know, that shape changes. But for most people, that's what it is. It's a six-month, pretty intensive program where we're in daily contact and the cost is $2,500. Although that'll probably go up at the new year, but we'll see. 
Yeah. Uh, and it depends on demand, I'm sure too. Yeah. 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 Okay. We get, we get busy this time of year and, you know, I recognize that $2,500 is not an insignificant amount of money. However, for the amount of time I'm putting into it, I'm constantly encouraged by people like you're not charging enough. You're not charging enough. Oh, that's cool. Well, okay. I'm still at the point I want it to be affordable for more people. So, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I think it's awesome that you're wanting to make it meaningful for them as well. You know, that, that you're not just out there creating some arbitrary plan or whatever that you're just running people through that you're trying to make it more tailored to that person. I think they get more out of it. When it's, it's very tailored, very personalized, right? Like, like that, I mean, yeah. of course there are common principles that apply to what we're trying to do, but but no, it's it's very tailored. And I think one of the things that sets it apart from a lot of programs is the daily contact. I think that's really important. If you've gone to therapy, you might be familiar with like you walk into therapy, you have a really good session, you have all these ideas, you walk out, you get busy. And the next time you think about any of those things is when you walk like, in the next yeah, week. Yeah, right before you're right. coming in. And, and so I had that happen over and over. And so I went, well, if I want people to really change, we need to be thinking about these things every day. And so that's the, the reason that we're, we're in email contact every day is because I think that's how real transformation works. Yeah, exactly. Little, yeah, little drops in the bucket for sure. All right. Well, before we say goodbye, do you want to give us any parting words for our listeners and then give us your contact information where we can find out more about your podcast and what you're doing with coaching? Yeah, I guess parting words would be like whatever it is that you want in life, whatever it is you want to be different, you can make a step towards that now. A lot of us get really hung up on, I don't have what I need, or I'll do it tomorrow, or like just where you are, take a step in the right direction. There's always a step in the right direction wherever we are. And so I always encourage people, just take the first one and then take the next one. So that would be my parting advice. And then you can find me at oneufeed.net. It's all spelled out, O-N-E-Y-O-U-F-E-E-D.net. You can find uh, the coaching information. You can find the podcast, which is always free. You can find our membership levels where you can get extra content, ad-free episodes, bonus conversations. I do a mini episode every week called A Teaching, a Song, and a Poem, where I give a brief teaching and I pick a song and a poem I love. Um, and share them with listeners. So lots of ways to interact with us. It's all at oneyoufeed.net. That's great. Well, and I highly recommend the One You Feed podcast. Like I said, it's been, uh, it is free podcast, but it has been a very uh, transformational part of my life and learning more about having a better life for, for sure. Those practical wisdoms. But thank you so much, Eric, for coming on, you know, helping us to figure out some better practical wisdom that helps to feed our curiosity as well. I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. Music featured in this episode from Scott Holmes. To learn more about our podcast, check us out at theluminousmind.net.